Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Rosetta Stone is the most trusted language learning program. I live in Southern California, Los Angeles. This is Baja Norte. If you do not speak Spanish in Los Angeles, well, you're missing out on a whole lot. Don't put off learning that language. There's no better time than right now to get started. And for a very limited time, LeVar Burton Rees listeners can get Rosetta Stone's lifetime membership for 50% off, visit rosettastone.com slash LeVar. That's rosettastone.com slash L-E-V-A-R. Hi, I'm LeVar Burton, and this is LeVar Burton Reads. In every episode, I handpick a different piece of short fiction, and I read it to you. The only thing these stories have in common is that I love them, and I hope you will too. Today, we are going, dear listener, into the woods with a story by Rick Bass. Rick Bass is a writer who lives in the remote Yak country in Montana. That's Y-A-A-K. He grew up in suburban Houston, but found himself drawn to the wilderness, to wide-open spaces. He became first a petroleum geologist who wrote stories on his lunch breaks, and then, he says, he started driving and didn't stop until he got to the wide-open spaces of Montana. He's been there quite a few years now, spending his time writing and on environmental activism. Rick is the author of more than 30 books, has won so many awards, including the O'Henry and the Pushcart Prizes, and fellowships from the National Endowment for the Arts and the Guggenheim Foundation. Today's story comes from his collection entitled For a Little While. This particular piece is called Fires. And you can find in Fires Rick's love for physical space and the pace of the wilderness within it. The writing is relaxed but steady, more like a pond rippling than a fire roaring and blazing. As you listen, I want you to think about the primal nature of human beings and the feeling of acting on impulse without exactly knowing why you are acting on that particular impulse. Okay? So, if you're ready, let's take a deep breath. Fires by Rick Bass Some years, the heat comes in April. There is always wind in April, but with luck, there is warmth too. When the wind is from the south, the fields turn dry and everyone in the valley moves their seedlings outdoors. 
Root crops are what do best up here. The soil is rich from all the many fires, and potatoes from this valley taste like candy. Carrots pull free of the dark earth and taste like crisp sun. Strawberries do well here if they're kept watered. The snow has left the valley by April, has moved up into the surrounding woods, and then by July, the snow is above the woods, retreating to the cooler, shadier places in the mountains. But small oval patches of it remain behind. As the snow moves up into the mountains, snowshoe hairs, gaunt but still white, descend on garden's fresh berry plants. You can see the rabbits. White as Persian cats from a mile away, coming after your plants, hopping through sun-filled woods and over-rotting logs, following centuries-old game trails of black earth. The rabbits come straight from my outside garden like relentless zombies, and I sit on the back porch and sight in on them. But they are too beautiful to kill in great numbers. I shoot only one every month or so. Just to warn them, I clean the one I shoot and fry it in a skillet with onions and half a piece of bacon. At night, when I'm restless, I go from my bed to the window and look out. In spring, I see the rabbits standing at attention around the greenhouse, aching to get inside. Several of them will dig at the earth, trying to tunnel in, while others sit there, waiting. Once the snow is gone, the rabbits begin to lose their white fur, or rather, they do not lose it, but it begins to turn the mottled brown of decaying leaves. Finally, the hairs are completely brown and safe again, indistinguishable from the world around them. I haven't lived with a woman for a long time. Whenever one does move in with me, it feels as if I've tricked her, caught her in a trap. As if the gate has been closed behind her, and she doesn't yet realize it. It's very remote up here. One April, a runner came to the valley to train at altitude. She was the sister of my friend Tom. Her name was Glenda, and she was from Washington State. Glenda had run races in Italy, France, and Switzerland. She told everyone, including the rough loggers and their wives, that this was the most beautiful place she had ever seen, and we believed her. Very few of us had ever been anywhere else to be able to question her. We often sat at the picnic tables in front of the saloon, ten or twelve of us at a time, half of the town, and watched the river. Ducks and geese heading north stopped in our valley to breed, build nests, and raise their young. Ravens, with their wings and backs shining greasy in the sun, were always flying across the valley from one side of the mountains to the other. Anyone who needed to make a little money could always do so in April by planting seedlings for the Forest Service, and it was an easier time because of that fact—a time of no bad tempers, of worries put aside for a while. 
I did not need much money, in April or in any other month. And I sat at the picnic table with Glinda and Tom and Nancy, Tom's wife, and drank beer. Glinda had yellow hair that was cut short and lake blue eyes, a pale face and a big grin, not unlike Tom's, that belied her seriousness. Though now that she is gone, I remember her always being able to grin because of her seriousness. Like the rest of us, Glinda had no worries, not in April and certainly not later on in the summer. She had only to run. She was separated from her boyfriend who lived in California, and she didn't seem to miss him, didn't ever seem to think about him. Before planting the seedlings, the Forest Service burned the slopes they had cut the previous summer and fall. In the afternoons, there would be a sweet-smelling haze that started about halfway up the valley walls, then rose into the mountains and spilled over them, moving north into Canada, riding on the south winds. The fire's haze never settled in our valley, but hung just above us, turning the sunlight a smoky blue and making things, when seen across the valley, a barn in another pasture or a fence line, seem much farther away than they really were. It made things seem softer, too. Glinda had a long scar on the inside of her leg that ran from the ankle all the way up to mid-thigh. She had injured her knee when she was 17. This was before arthroscopic surgery, and she'd had to have the knee rebuilt the old-fashioned way, with blades and scissors, the scar only seemed to make her legs, both of them, look even more beautiful. The scar had a graceful curve to it as it ran some distance up her leg. Glinda wore green nylon shorts and a small white t-shirt when she ran, and a headband. Her running shoes were dirty white, the color of the road dust during the dry season. I'm 32 and have six or seven more good years of running. She said whenever anyone asked her what her plans were, why she ran so much, and why she had come to our valley to train. Mostly, it was the men who asked, the ones who sat with us in front of the saloon watching the river, watching the spring winds move across the water. We were all glad that winter was over. Except for Nancy, I do not think the women liked Glinda very much. It was not well known in the valley what a great runner Glinda was, and I think it gave Glinda pleasure that it wasn't. I'd like you to follow Glinda on a bicycle, Tom said the first time I met her. He'd invited me over for dinner a short time after she'd arrived. There's money. Available from her sponsor to pay you for it, he said, handing me some money, or trying to, finally putting it in my shirt pocket. He had been drinking and seemed as happy as I'd seen him in a long time. After stuffing the bills into my pocket, he put one arm around Nancy, who looked embarrassed for me, and the other arm around Glinda, who did not, and so I had to keep the money, which was not that much anyway. You just ride along behind her with a pistol. Tom had a gun holstered on his belt, a big one, 
and he took it off and handed it to me. And you make sure nothing happens to her, the way it did to that Ocherson woman. The woman named Ocherson had been walking home along the river road after visiting friends when a bear evidently charged out of the willows and dragged her across the river. She had disappeared the previous spring, and at first everyone thought she had run away. Her husband had gone around all summer making a fool of himself, bad-mouthing her. Then hunters found her body in the fall, right before the first snow. Every valley had its bear stories, but we thought our story was the worst because the victim had been a woman. It'll be good exercise for me, I said to Tom. And then I said to Glinda, Do you run fast? It wasn't a bad job. I was able to keep up with her most of the time. Some days, Glinda ran only a few miles, very fast. And on other days, it seemed she ran forever. There was hardly ever any traffic, not a single car or truck. And I daydreamed as I rode along behind her. Early in the morning, we'd leave the meadow in front of Tom's place and head up the mountain on the South Fork Road, above the river and into the woods, going past my cabin. Near the summit, the sun would be up and burning through the haze of the planting fires. Everything would look foggy and old, as if we had gone back in time and not everything had been decided yet. By the time we reached the summit, Glinda's shirt and shorts were drenched, her hair damp and sticking to the sides of her face, her socks, and even her running shoes were wet. But she always said that the people she would be racing against would be training even harder than she was. There were lakes around the summit, and the air was cooler. On the north slope, the lakes still had a thin crust of ice over them a crust that thawed each afternoon but froze again at night. What Glinda liked to do after she'd reached the summit, her face flushed and her wrists limp and loose, so great was the heat and her exhaustion, was to leave the road and run down the game trail, tripping, stumbling, running downhill again. I would have to throw the bike down and hurry after her. She'd pull her shirt off and run into the shallows of the first lake she saw, her feet breaking through the thin ice. Then she'd sit down in the cold water like an animal chased there by hounds. This feels good, she said the first time she did that. She leaned her head back on the shelf of ice behind her and spread her arms as if she were resting on a cross. She looked up through the haze at the empty sky above the tree line. Come over here, she said. Come feel this. I waded out, following her trail through the ice, and sat down next to her. She took my hand and put it on her chest. What I felt was like nothing I had ever imagined. It was like lifting up the hood of a car with the engine on and seeing all the cables and belts and fan blades still running. Right away, I wanted to get her to a doctor. I wondered if she were going to die, whether I would be held responsible. 
I wanted to pull my hand away, but she made me keep it there. And gradually, the drumming slowed, became steadier, and still she made me keep my hand there until we could both feel the water's coldness. Then we got out. I had to help her up because her damaged knee was stiff. We spread out our clothes and lay down on flat rocks to dry in the wind and the sun. She said that she had come to the mountains to run because it would strengthen her knee. But there was something that made me believe that that was not the truth, though I cannot tell you what other reason there might have been. Let's get back to our story. On every hot day, we went into the lake after her run. It felt wonderful, and lying in the sun afterward was wonderful too. Once we were dry, our hair smelled like the smoke from the planting fires. There were times when I thought that Glinda might be dying and had come here to live out her last days, run in a country of great beauty. By the time we started our journey home, there'd be a slow wind coming off the river. The wind cleared a path through the haze, moving it to either side and beneath it. In that space in between, we could see the valley, green and soft. Midway up the north slope, the ragged fires would still be burning. Wavering smoke rose from behind the trees. The temptation to get on the bike and coast all the way down was always strong, but I knew what my job was. We both did. It was the time when bears came out of hibernation, and the safety of winter was not to be confused with the seriousness of summer, with the way things were changing. Walking back, we would come upon roughed grouse, the males courting and fanning in the middle of the road, spinning in a dance, their throat sacks inflated and pulsing bright orange red. The grouse did not want to let us go past. They stamped their feet and blocked our way, trying to protect some small certain area they had staked out for themselves. Glinda stiffened whenever she saw the fanning males and shrieked when they rushed in and tried to peck at her ankles. We'd stop at my cabin for lunch and I'd open all the windows. By then, the sun would have heated the log walls, and inside was a rich, dry smell, as there is when you have been away from your house for a long time. We would sit at the breakfast room table and look out the window, at the weedy chicken house I'd never used, and at the woods going up the mountain behind the chicken house. We drank coffee and ate whitefish, which I had caught and smoked the previous winter. I had planted a few young apple trees in the backyard that spring, and the nursery that sold them to me said these trees could withstand even the coldest winters, though I wasn't sure I believed it. They were small trees and would not bear fruit for four years, and that had sounded to me like such a long time that I really had to think about it before buying them. But I bought them anyway, without really knowing why. I also didn't know what would make a person run as much as Glenda did. 
I liked riding alongside her, though, and having coffee with her after the runs, and I knew I would be sad to see her leave the valley. I think that was what kept up the distance between us. A nice distance. The fact that both of us knew she would stay only a short time, until the end of August. Knowing this seemed to take away any danger, any wildness. It was a certainty there was a wonderful sense of control. I had a couple of dogs in the backyard, Texas hounds I'd brought up north with me a few years before. I kept them pinned up in the winter so they wouldn't chase deer, but in the spring and summer, I let them lie around in the grass, dozing. There was one thing they would chase, though, in the summer. It lived under the chicken house, and I don't know what it was. It ran too fast for me to ever get a good look at it. It was small and dark with fur, but it wasn't a bear cub. Perhaps it was some rare animal, something from Canada, maybe something no one had ever seen before. Whatever it was, it never grew from year to year, yet it seemed young somehow, as if it might someday grow. It would rip out of the woods, a fleet blur headed for its burrow, and as soon as the dogs saw it, they would be up and baying right on its tail. But the thing always reached its burrow under the chicken house just ahead of them. Glinda and I would sit at the window and watch for it every day. But it kept no timetable, and there was no telling when it would come, or even if it would. We called it a hedgehog because that was the closest thing it might have resembled. Some nights, Glinda would call me on the shortwave radio. She would key the mic a few times to make it crackle and wake me up, and then I would hear a mysterious voice floating in static through my cabin. Have you seen the hedgehog? She would ask sleepily, but it was never her real voice there in the dark with me. Did you see the hedgehog? She'd want to know, and I'd wish she were with me at that moment. But it would be no good. Glinda was leaving in August, or September at the latest. No, I'd say in the dark. No hedgehog today. Maybe it's gone away. Though I had thought that many times, I would always see it again, just when I thought I never would. How are the dogs? She'd ask. They're asleep. Good night, she'd say. Good night. One Thursday night, I had Tom and Nancy and Glinda over for dinner. Friday was Glinda's day off from running, so she allowed herself to drink and stay up late on Thursdays. Before dinner, we started out drinking at the saloon. Around dusk, we went down to my cabin, and Glinda and I fixed dinner while Tom and Nancy sat on the front porch, watching the elk appear in the meadow across the road as the light faded. Where's this famous hedgehog? Tom bellowed, puffing a cigar, blowing smoke rings into the night, big, perfect O's. 
The elk lifted their heads, chewing the summer grass like cattle, the bull's antlers glowing with velvet. In the backyard, Glinda said as she washed the salad greens, but you can only see him in the daytime. Ah, bullshit, Tom roared, standing up with his bottle of Jack Daniels. He took off down the steps, stumbling, and the three of us put down what we were doing to get flashlights and run after him to make sure he was all right. Tom was a trapper, and it riled him to think there was an animal he did not know, could not trap, could not even see. Out by the chicken house, he got down on his hands and knees, breathing hard, and we crowded around him to shine the flashlights into the deep, dusty hole. He made grunting noises that were designed, I suppose, to make the animal want to come out, but we never saw anything. It was cold under the stars. Far off the planting fires burned, but they were held in check, controlled by backfires. I had a propane fish fryer, and we put it on the front porch and cut trout into cubes, rolled them in flour, then dropped them in the hot, spattering grease. We fixed about a hundred trout cubes, and when we finished eating, there were none left. Glinda had a tremendous appetite, ate almost as many as Tom. She licked her fingers afterward and asked if there were any more. After dinner, we took our drinks and sat on the steep roof of my cabin, above the second-floor dormer. Tom sat out on the end of the dormer, as if it were a saddle, and Glinda sat next to me for warmth, and we watched the fires spread across the mountainside, burning but contained. Below us, in the backyard, those few rabbits that still had not turned completely brown began coming out of the woods. Dozens of them approached the greenhouse, then stopped and lined up around it, wanting to get into the tender young carrots and the Simpson lettuce. I had put sheets down on the ground to trick them, and we laughed as the rabbits shifted nervously from sheet to sheet, several of them huddling together on one sheet at a time, imagining they were protected. Turn back, you bastards! Tom shouted. That woke the ducks on the pond nearby, and they began clucking among themselves. It was a reassuring sound. Nancy made Tom tie a rope around his waist and tie the other end around the chimney in case he fell. But Tom said he wasn't afraid of anything and was going to live forever. Glinda weighed herself before and after each run. I had to remind myself not to get too close to her. I only wanted to be her friend. We ran and rode in silence. We never saw any bears, but she was frightened of them, even as the summer went on without us seeing any. And so I always carried the pistol. We had gotten tan from lying out by the lake up at the summit, Glinda took long naps at my cabin after her runs, 
We both did. Glinda sleeping on my couch. I'd cover her with a blanket and lie down on the floor next to her. The sun would pour in through the window. There was no longer any other world beyond our valley. Only here. Only now. But still, I could feel my heart pounding. It turned drier than ever in August, and the loggers began cutting again. The days were windy and the fields and meadows turned to crisp hay. Everyone was terrified of sparks, especially the old people, because they'd seen big fires rush through the valley, moving through like an army. The big fire in 1910, and then again in 1930, which burned up every tree except for the luckiest ones, so that for years afterward the entire valley was barren and scorched. One afternoon in early August, Glenda and I went to the saloon. She lay down on top of a picnic table and looked up at the clouds. She would be going back to Washington in three weeks, she said, and then down to California. Almost all of the men would be off logging in the woods by then, and if she stayed, we would have the whole valley to ourselves. Tom and Nancy had been calling us the lovebirds since July, hoping for something to happen, something other than what was or wasn't, but they'd stopped in August. Glinda was running harder than ever, really improving so that I was having trouble keeping up with her. There was no ice left anywhere. No snow, not even in the darkest, coolest parts of the forest. But the lakes and rivers were still ice cold when we waded into them. Glinda continued to press my hand to her breast until I could feel her heart calming and then almost stopping as the waters worked on her. Don't you ever leave this place, she said as she watched the clouds. You've got it. Really good here. I stroked her knee with my fingers, running them along the inside scar. The wind tossed her hair around. She closed her eyes, and though it was hot, there were goosebumps on her tanned legs and arms. No, I wouldn't do that, I said. I thought about her heart, hammering in her chest after those long runs. At the top of the summit... I'd wonder how anything could ever be so alive. The afternoon she set fire to the field across the road from my cabin was a still day windless, and I suppose that Glinda thought it would do no harm, and she was right, though I did not know it then. I was at my window when I saw her out in the field lighting matches, bending down and cupping her hands until a small blaze appeared at her feet. Then she came running across the field. At first, I could hardly believe my eyes. The smoke in front of the fire made it look as if I were seeing something from memory or something that had happened in another time. The fire seemed to be secondary, even inconsequential. What mattered 
was that she was running, coming across the field toward my cabin. I loved to watch her run. I did not know why she had set the fire, and I was very afraid that it might cross the road and burn up my hay barn, even my cabin, but I was not as frightened as I might have been. It was the day before Glinda was going to leave, and mostly, I was delighted to see her. She ran up the steps, pounded on my door, and came inside, breathless, having run a dead sprint all the way. The fire was spreading fast, even without a wind, because the grass was so dry, and red-winged blackbirds were flying out of the grass ahead of it. I could see rabbits and mice scurrying across the road, heading for my yard. It was late in the afternoon, not quite dusk. An elk bounded across the meadow. There was a lot of smoke. Glinda pulled me by the hand, taking me back outside and down the steps, back out toward the fire, toward the pond on the far side of the field. It was a large pond, large enough to protect us, I hoped. We ran hard across the field, and a new wind suddenly picked up, a wind created by the flames. We got to the pond and kicked our shoes off, pulled off our shirts and jeans and splashed into the water. We waited for the flames to reach us and then work their way around us. It was just a grass fire, but the heat was intense as it rushed toward us, blasting our faces with hot wind. It was terrifying. We ducked our heads under the water to cool our drying faces and threw water on each other's shoulders. Birds flew past us, and grasshoppers dived into the pond with us where hungry trout rose and snapped at them, swallowing them like corn. It was growing dark, and there were flames all around us. We could only wait and see whether the grass was going to burn itself up as it swept past. Please, love, Glinda was saying, and I did not understand at first that she was speaking to me. Please. We had moved out into the deepest part of the pond, chest deep kept having to duck beneath the surface because of the heat. Our lips and faces were scorched. Pieces of ash were floating down to the water like snow. It was not until nightfall that the flames died, leaving just a few orange ones flickering here and there. But the rest of the small field was black and smoldering. It suddenly turned cold and we held on to each other tightly because we were shivering. I thought about luck and about chance. I thought about fears, all the different ones, and the things that could make a person run. She left at daylight. She would not let me drive her home. She said she wanted to run instead. And she did. Her feet raised puffs of dust in the road.
This is a deceptively small story. And it's a quiet story. It's almost like a meditation, this story, for me. Because it is, it's almost pastoral in its expression. I mean, he's, he's writing about this incredibly beautiful place. And, and he's writing about it so simply. And everything is stated so matter-of-factly that when I read this story, I really find myself slowing down. It's, it's great when a story can have that sort of impact on your autonomic nervous system, that it just brings you down. Like I said, it, it's like a meditation for me reading this story. It's a meditation on, on, on just life the seasons the you know the turning of the earth the fires that are set and 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 the rabbits that are white in the snow and have to like the leaves turn with the season it, it, it's 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 really a story about control isn't it um controlling nature um and controlling you know the the animal spirit within that lives in 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 all of us two leggeds um Control and surrender, the desire to, to control that which we cannot and, and the surrender to the realization, the recognition that you can't control everything, you know? Some things are just going to happen whether we want them to or not. Her leaving was inevitable. That was always going to happen. He called it from the very beginning. But that didn't stop them from spending that time together, having that intimate experience of summer. It was beautiful. In the modern world, it's certainly true and can be said that we've, we've walled ourselves off from nature. And, you know, s- spending time and being in, in concert with the natural cycles of the world used to be such an important part of our existence on this planet. Um, and, and it's rare when we're able to take the time. It's, it's, in most instances, it's, it's a vacation where we actually remove ourselves from, you know, the, the, the jungle of the modern world and, and go back to nature for a week or two. And it's as delicious as that feels, it's virtually impossible to re-sync up in a couple of weeks that which has been, for the most part, absent in our lives for, for 50 weeks of the year. But yet that's, that's the challenge that we've given to ourselves to, you know, try and, and find that balance that only nature can provide, um, that, that sort of peace and acceptance that nature represents. Nature is just going to do nature's thing, and, and the best thing we can do in nature or with nature is to surrender to the natural cycles. You know, I used to camp all the time when I was a kid um, and spending time in, in, in the forests and on the land was, used to be a big part of my life. Not as much anymore. I miss that. I mourn it. And I was a camp counselor at Camp Harvey West on Lower Echo Lake in, in Northern California, just south of Lake Tahoe. 
And I, I remember those th- those days really fondly. I mean, they they are shrouded in sort of a a, a, a smoke filled haze. In in that, when I look back on those times, I mean, those those are sort of golden memories for me. Those summers on on the lake, Lower Echo Lake. It's it's just it's a really calming tale for me brings my blood pressure down this story reading this story not many stories do that i could probably use more stories like this in my life Our producer on this episode of LeVar Burton Reads is the best in the business, Julia Smith. Our assistant producer is Audrey No. Our editing and sound design is by Misha Stanton. And my thanks to our consulting producer, Mr. Adam Diver. And also our thanks to Ryan Connor for his engineering expertise in today's episode. And my thanks, of course, to Rick Bass and his publisher, Little Brown and Company, for allowing me to read his story today. You can find it in his collection entitled For a Little While, which is available in print and in audiobook format. He has also got a new memoir out. It's called The Traveling Feast on the Road and at the Table with My Heroes, and it is also from Little Brown and Company. And hey, if you love the show and want to help other people find it, it's easy to do. Simply leave us a rating or a review on Apple Podcast. And in that review, Give us a suggestion for a story you'd like to hear on the podcast. We have been using your suggestions to make new episodes. We'll be back next week with another hand-picked story, or if you can't wait that long, listen to the next episode right now on Stitcher Premium. Go to stitcherpremium.com slash LeVar, or if you're listening in Stitcher, just tap the menu button in your app and select Premium for one month free. LeVar Burton Reads is a production of Stitcher. Our executive producers are Chris C.B. Bannon and Jenny Radelette of the Flying Radelette Sisters. I'm LeVar Burton, and you can find me on Twitter at LeVar Burton and LeVar.Burton on Instagram. And for the kids in your life, check out LeVar Burton Kids Skybury app with books and videos at LeVarBurtonKids.com. I'll see you next time, but you don't have to take my word. Stitcher. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Life is a highway, and on it there will be many chicken sandwiches. But there's only one crispy so go ahead and hit the turn signal if you know about this juicy gem of a detour.